The Jason Cabinets Experience is sponsored by Cabinets HR. Cabinets HR delivers HR to companies with 49 or fewer people across the United States with our platform that automates HR products and services while giving you access to a dedicated HR business partner for more complicated HR challenges. Small business loses an estimated $10,000 per employee per year because of unreliable HR. Small business owners are spending an average of 25% of the time at HR, time that would be better spent taking care of their people, their customers, and building their business. Cavernous HR saves small business owners time and money on, on their HR. Sign up at www.cavernousHR.com or email me at jasoncavernous at cavernousHR.com to learn more. Cavernous HR, focus on your business. We've got your HR. This is the Jason Kavnis Experience, hosted by Jason Kavnis. Join Jason as he talks to small business owners and startup founders and other interesting people as we gain great insights about business, people, leadership, HR, and how each guest strives to be great every day. Hello. Welcome to Jason Kavnis Experience. I'm your host, Jason Kavnis. Our guest today is John Steinberg. John, you ready to be great today? Ready to be great. John is a father, venture capitalist with, for over 30 years, a wine guy, and mostly trying to somehow leave this world a better place than when he came on board. He's a food, he loves venture capital, he loves search funds, technology, real estate entrepreneurs. And he still does his best to find inspiration every day and he's grateful for all his blessings. John, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. So first, John, let's talk about something I think is near and dear to your heart. The Nebraska Cornhuskers. Oh, yeah. I'll be going back uh, to God's country in two weeks for the annual Berkshire Hathaway meeting and uh, see Uncle Warren and Uncle Charlie. And I, I love Omaha and I love Nebraska. So do you think they finally got their hiring coach right with this Matt <laughs> rule? Because there are some misses as far as coaches have gone last few it years. It has been a very challenging and difficult few years. You know, my... My first 40 years of life, all I did, all we did, all I knew was winning. Uh -huh. And uh, I would go to almost every game. I would uh, bleed red. I would be despondent if they lost. Yeah, it's a big deal to me. I was, I, in fact, I was, uh, when I was 14, I was the ball boy for the basketball team and I would drive down from Omaha to Lincoln twice a week just to do that. So, it's a, it's kind of a big deal. Yeah, I think y'all's fan base definitely got spoiled. I remember they had a friend solo. He like made this number, had like 85% winning percentage, and y'all pretty much ran him out of town. Exactly. And it's like y'all paid the price for that after that, unfortunately, for if you're a Cornhusker fan. We, we did. The world the world's changed. Uh, teams have gotten better. The stakes are higher. Uh, but we still have the most consecutive sellout streak. Yeah. Uh, the fans are great. They travel well. Um you know, as the song says, there's no place like good old Nebraska. Now, do you have season tickets there? No, but lots of my friends who live okay. there do. So that's... I have to imagine that's like trying to get a Green Bay Packers season yeah, ticket. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm just lucky that I know folks that have them and have had them in their family forever. And uh, I really, I, I actually planned my calendar at the beginning of the year for the fall to make sure I pick one weekend to get down there for, for a game. So you think Matt Rule is going to be a good hire for y'all? What's your take on that? You know, we're undefeated right now. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I, he he's saying all the right things. Yeah. He's doing all the right things. His background's great. He should be a great recruiter. 
uh, people are excited. I mean, yeah. they're really. I know. Isn't he the one to like re- convince Frank Solich to come back and do an honor day? You know, like. Right. I mean, that's a big thing, I would it, think. It is a big thing. Like the fans are great, but they want they want to win again. Yeah, and and the administration, the university, everybody knows it. The stakes are high, uh, but but I, I'm I'm you know I'm confident. Every, yeah. I really am. I'm I'm excited in in a way I haven't for a while. But the whole landscape of college football has changed oh, yeah. so, so much. much. Um, I'm not sure I love the direction of it, uh, but I love my Huskers. Yes, I know one thing. I, I'm sure it made a lot of Cornhuskers fans' heart like. Like glow with love when Matt Rule says he's gonna bring back the fullback to the offense. Exactly. The old days, the glory days, you know, three yards and a pile of <laughs> it's great. I look, I I think we've got to change things up, right? The excitement for Scott Frost was to bring in this high-powered offense that never materialized. Yeah. Let's go back to our I roots. mean, you gotta bring the talent in the mess offense, right? Exactly. And and, and be honest, like you gotta really do a be a great recruiter, bring for someone from like Southern LA to Nebraska, right? That, that's right. Yeah. It's it's a great experience to go in that stadium, but it, at the end of the day, the winner is still in Nebraska. Yeah. <laughs> so you gotta you gotta overcome that a little bit. Yeah, definitely. As far as the, uh, the, the direction on college sports, I mean, I know a lot of people have negative things about NI Auto Sale. My thing is like this, like I just think if they were to pay those students like a thousand dollars a month, none of this would have happened, right? Right. Just give these students, you know. Spending money to buy little Nickers Christian and start being like a black and white person. Oh, you, you got a dinner, a, a burrito for five dollars. You're a spender, right? It, it made no sense, right? And now, it's, unfortunately, it's something's doing like crazy. Just the other way, like that's right. Like like quarterback from I think California, like got a, was supposed to get two million dollars a year from Florida. He turned it down to get to get a higher offers. Like you just wonder where the, the slope is slippery. Yeah, and you wonder where it's going to go, right? Yeah. And it kind of takes away a little bit of the innocence, if mm-hmm. you will, of the game. You know, it's, yeah. it's uh, who likes pro sports now? Yeah. I mean, it was so much better. I'm sorry to say, I don't want to be one of those guys who, oh, everything's worse. I, I don't believe that. But there is a little bit of something lost yeah. in, in, the, uh, in the pure amateur athletics of college football. I agree. I agree. Um, so, so you were born in Omaha. You go back to visit once a year or? Yeah. Well, I go back, uh, at least once yeah. and usually more than once. Mm-hmm. Um, I try and get back for the, for the Buffett Woodstock event. Okay. And, uh, I try and go back and see, I have family there still. And I try and go back for a football game. And, um, I, I really, it's funny. I, I really do feel like when I'm back there, I'm home. I have the same way. Like I retired from the army up here. And uh, like my wife pretty much made me stay, but I'm from Texas. Texas is always home. Right. Like, like it's nice here. Don't be the wrong place. What I'm trying to do, like tech startups, it's a, it's the better, one of the better places to be, but I'll never be home. So I definitely know what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I have so many fond memories. I had a great childhood growing up. You know, we didn't, we didn't lock our doors. We didn't no. lock our cars. Your door was open. Any neighbor could come and have dinner. You know, you just played in the hood and, you know, you got home in time for, for dinner and it was pretty simple and innocent there too. So I, I met, I, I thought that was great. And that, that whole thing, I have a almost 15 year old daughter and the world's so changed. I oh, think yeah. It'd be so, it'd be so hard. I think to be a teenager today, mm-hmm. it's so confusing. So much is being thrown at them. Yep. Have access to everything, which it can be good, but then a lot of times it's bad. That's right. That's right. And um, so 
you know, you got to put, you just hope you're instilling the right values and, and you make sure that you're there for them and you, you know, the mistakes they make because everyone makes mistakes and aren't, aren't too bad. So I know one of your important roles too is being a dad. Can you talk about how you as a dad, like impart your values to your kids without being like overbearing or like, you know, do as I say, you know, <laughs> it's, it's a learning process, man. I mean, I, I, I have to say, uh, I probably was a little overbearing in the earlier years. Um, cause that was my MO. It was my mode. And, and I, and I just came to the conclusion I mean, the universe kind of, kind of hit me on the head and said, you know, it's going to be fine. You know, that, 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 that child, your daughter is, is going to do really great and it's going to be fine. So I, I try and remind her of, of what's important. And mostly my single biggest thing I try and do is be an example. If I want them to be, if I want her to be kind, I need to be kind. If I want them to be generous, I need to be generous. If I want them to be a hard worker, I need to be a hard worker. It's it's that way, really. Yeah. And you only have the one child? I only have one. One child? Oh, man. Oh, she's spoiled? She doesn't think so. <laughs> <laughs> of course she doesn't. Of course she doesn't. <laughs> uh, I, I I think she probably is. Yeah. Like, people always, like, think it's a negative thing. Like, you know, it's my my child. Like, of course I'm going to spoil your child, right? This is only one, right? Like, right. what am I going to do? Like, oh, no, you can't have this. If I can give it to you, that's yeah, thinking I, never made any sense to me. Exactly. And, and you know, I, I try try and teach her about budgets and teach her about money and teach her about material things. And, but as you said, I'm a softy. Yeah. Right. I mean, if she really wants something or needs something, I'm, I'm going to, she's going to get it probably. And her birthday's coming up and her budget wasn't terrible, but, <laughs> but it was more than I ever had as a kid. I can tell you that. <laughs> oh yeah. I definitely know that. That's one, one thing that's funny too. Like as, as parents, like we're always like, you know, I don't want as rough for me as like, my kids are growing up, but like, what you went through as a kid, like made you the person today, right? Right. So we're not want your kid to go the same thing. So Absolutely. it's like, and then we get, like we give you give your kids all this stuff, and we complain, oh, kids these days are soft. Why? Why do you think they're soft, right? Right. Exactly. So it's interesting age, you know. She's going to be fifteen here in, in a little bit, and and I think things are going to change a little bit. I, I think the lessons imparted, the ways we impart them is going to change. You know, being a parent is, is such a dynamic. It's, it's different than anything else. There's I've no ever trainer's done, manual, right? no right. directions. Exactly. And uh, most days I'm not sure I feel like I've done a very good job. Uh, every once in a while, I, I feel like I'm surprised and there's a little bit of a win in there. But, you know, I, I, it's been said many times, but it's so true. They teach us more than we yeah. teach them. And it's, it's the greatest gift I've ever been given for sure. But it's hard. Here's one for you. Like you always see like parents saying like, my, my parents did this and this wrong, you know, I'll never get over it. And then they do the exact same thing with their kids. Right. Well, it's so interesting. Why as humans do we need to be pissed off at our parents? Yeah. I never, I never fully grokked that. I mean, my parents weren't perfect because they're human. Right. But I never I don't I don't really dwell on what they did wrong. Yeah. But we're all walking around wounded. And I guess I know. that the lesson there is know that and have compassion for others. Right. Yeah. But 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 also be aware of it in yourself. Right. And I really work hard on trying to be mindful and in the moment and not reacting uh, without some kind of balance and, 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 and setting, setting yourself so that you're not, I, I just, 
early on, I'll, I'll say I, I probably did react a little more than I wanted to, right? But that's part of being a parent. You're, you're all of a sudden confronted with things you've never been confronted with. And the other thing about being a parent is, you know, I'm so used to being able to outsmart and outwork. That's not how you do it as a parent, <laughs> right? So it's been great. So on a day-to-day basis, how do you find inspiration? Oh, gosh, in so many ways. Um, it's funny. I was just in Portugal and I was with a lovely couple. Um, I was staying at their house and they get up every morning at five and do what they call prayer. And for them, prayer is meditation and intention setting and gratitude journals. I don't do two hours of that, but I do all of that every day in some form. I do meditate every day. I try and uh, get outside and walk and mindfully walk. Um, I am uh, looking at uh, writers for inspiration. Every day, I, I actually try and start my day. You know, some people go on Facebook and uh, or Instagram and they look for uh, you know, being upset that other people are traveling to Italy or having this great food or this great bottle of wine or have friends or celebrate. I go on there and literally every day I think, wow, isn't that great? My friends are having a great time. Oh, that looks like a fun place. I want to go there. Oh, I, I, I'd like to try that sometime. Or, or pictures of uh, and photographs of nature. L- literally every morning I start out doing that. And the other thing I do every morning, and I've done this for a long time, is I uh, get on Facebook and I wish every one of, I have five, I have the limit of Facebook friends, 5,000 people. And every day, therefore, you know, 365, five, there's probably 10 birthdays, right? Every day I, I write a unique note to every one of them, wishing them a happy birthday. Just because I want, I want to start my day helping others feel great and and uh, sharing my passion for for their life as well. And it's amazing how something that small can probably make such a big impact on someone today. I don't know if it does. I, honestly, I, I kind of do it for myself. You know, that's the thing about you. I think giving and and inspiration. Sometimes you have to say, "I'm doing this for that person to feel good about." To to I want them to feel good, of course, right? But but it's also I feel better that it's not all about me at every moment. So that's a part of what I'm looking for, and then just. Literally waking up every morning, I do a little bit of prayer, but also just uh, a gratitude. I'm a, I'm here. I'm excited about it. What do I get to accomplish? What do I get to see? How can I be inspired today? These are all questions. While I don't sit down for two hours, they are part of my day every day. You make a point. It's like on, on social media, you know how great a post is like nature, uplifting. What a case. Right. Oh, I just got a promotion. There's at least one troll on there that says something negative. Like it never fails. Like do these people just exist? Like people down. I don't well, get I don't it. Know because I just literally ignore those. I mean, I, honestly, that's not why I'm on it. I am actually on it to be uplifted. So for me, for me, and, and again, I don't spend hours doing it and I, I don't do it. And then it's done for the day. I literally don't look at Facebook for the rest of the day. Yeah. Is Facebook and LinkedIn of the two main social medias that you use? I, I feel like I it should be Twitter. I really, I find Instagram the most inspiring because I've, I've, for some reason, I've got more poets and artists and, and people, creative people on there. So that's, that's probably the place I go for a quick hit of, of something cool. Mm-hmm. And then Facebook, I actually use a little bit more communication wise and LinkedIn. I'm all in on. Yeah. 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 LinkedIn, I think definitely I don't care what you're doing in the world today. You have to be on LinkedIn. Like I embraced it early. I don't remember it. Reed uh, Hoffman who started, you know, I, I was one of the first I don't know, 10,000 or something. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, and I, I really like it. And it's going to be really interesting to see with AI coming, how all of this stuff evolves so that when we walk into a room, we have so much more information on someone. It's not just a static thing. It becomes a live uh, database for us. So I, I think it's really, I, I, I'm all in on LinkedIn and I'm out, you know, right now we'll talk about it, but I'm out raising a fund mm-hmm. and, and LinkedIn is, is, is reminding me of people in my past and mm-hmm. in, in places where I've been and we've been together. And so reaching out to some people I, I hadn't for a while is, is a great resource for me. So talk about LinkedIn. I think a lot of people would love hate relationship with LinkedIn, right? They love it for certain things, hate it for certain things. And know. like from your point of view, what does LinkedIn do good? From my point of view? Yeah. yeah so I think, uh, first of all, way too many people are lying on LinkedIn, oh, right? So it's crazy. Uh, and it's gotten, it feels like it's gotten worse, but um, I love to be able to see, I, I, I probably every single day, people write me and say, you know, this person, would you help me get to them? Or would you introduce me to them? And one of my superpowers, I think, is my networking and connecting skills. And also, if it's someone I truly know, because, you know, sometimes people connect you on LinkedIn, I want to help people out. If If I can see that there's going to be something really good coming out of it, I'm happy to do it. So I think they they do a great job of that. I don't think there's a better platform for that. I also like going into meetings, having looked at it, just as as you do, right? To say, oh, you worked here. Oh, you know this person. It it is a natural way to get up to speed, so that you can build some connection rapport, have some conversation topics, no matter what the meeting is. So I think it does a terrific job of that. In a way, again, I don't know what else does it better. Yeah, I don't know how, how like, I know some people like they refuse me on LinkedIn. But the reason I was how anyone finds a job or gets anything done in the business world without being linked. It's almost like, you know, it's like, okay, he's Jason Kevin's on LinkedIn. At least I know he exists and he's a not a scam artist, right? Of well, course. Yeah, and I think they're gonna actually up their game on that piece. They need to, because recently, like at least once a week, I get a, a, a LinkedIn request from some Asian, younger Asian female. <laughs> Looks like she's 24. Oh my gosh. But she's a VP of engineering at a multi-being company out of Singapore. <laughs> and it says She's a high school graduate, right? Yeah. So obviously a scam, right? Right. But yeah. Right, right, right. I know. I haven't had so many young, uh, attractive women uh, want to connect to me in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> it used to be it used to be the African uncle died and you were going to yeah. inherit. And then it was, you know, we, how could we improve our body parts? Yeah. <laughs> now it's this trend. <laughs> yeah. Who knows what the next trend will be? Right. It's be crazy. So tell us about these founder dinners that you do. Sure. Uh, did did uh, three dinners last week, actually in San Francisco. <clears throat> I've been doing them for w- almost two decades. Uh, they've evolved uh, to some degree, but it's a very simple idea. The simple idea is get good people together in a, in a somewhat intimate setting, 30, 30 or five people. We're not selling anything. All we're doing is saying, hey, we think you're a good person. You're a good person. You probably have some interesting ideas to share. And maybe it's on the founder's journey. Maybe it's on a babysitter for your newborn, whatever it is, just getting good people together. We get so in our ruts in this world, right? That sometimes just getting out, changing it up, meeting new people that can create a a source of inspiration and, and hopefully friendships. I mean, I've actually had a lot of marriages come out of it. 
and I've had founders connect with other founders to start things. You don't know what's going to come out of it. And that's what I love about it. And uh, I, I keep thinking, okay, I've got a I've got so much going on. Maybe it's time to stop doing these. But then the community keeps saying, no, don't stop. Sponsors want, want us to do them. So I've done them. I've done them all over the country. I've done them in Texas. I've done them in New York. I've done them in LA. Currently, we have Salt Lake coming up. We have Seattle coming up. We have San Francisco coming up. Uh, and so uh, I try everybody in the room. will get to know everybody else in the room. We've got a we've kind of got a playbook that allows people to really know people by the time they leave for the evening, everybody said something about themselves uh, that you can walk away with and follow up on. Here's one for you. Like here, your, 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 your dinner, right? And you notice someone's like extrovert. They're trying to stay by themselves. You know, you know, they're a good person to talk to. Like, how do you get that person? I'm an introvert myself. How do you get that person? Like, no, be more extroverted. Oh gosh. It's, it's uh, first of all, the, the, the truly the energy in the room makes it tough for an introvert to be introverted. Um, secondly, everybody at dinner has to talk to the neighbor and find out about them and present that person. Okay. Um, and then I will personally go over and talk to that person. Well, I, I, I was a high school journalist. And I think that comes from me finding everyone to be interesting, that everyone has a story, that everyone can offer me some kind of learning or perspective that I didn't have. So. It's super easy. And, you know, most people like talking about themselves a little bit, like when people show interest in them. So it's just it's the it's the building up to the comfort level. So, you know, with an introvert, I, I don't mind. I'm not going to throw them in and go <laughs> get in there, but, you know, go talk to them or and I, and I do it with people that also I think are compassionate, kind, interested, engaged people who will go literally, I mostly don't have to do that because most people who come to our dinners will go over and say hello. It is very interesting. I was at a, um, I put on a, a search fund uh, happy hour last week. And there was, there was one such gentleman. And when we started the night, he was kind of off by himself and I went and talked to him. But in the evening, I couldn't get him to leave. So, so it is something I try and I try and do at these dinners, make sure everybody's engaged with each other. So for the dinners, like, how do you pick the cities, like locations? Sure. Like, I'm guessing you don't do a, a dinner in every city every month, right? So how does that all work no, out? No, 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 no. Yeah. So really, San Francisco tends to be the focus. San Francisco culture is all about networking. So it is so easy to fill up the dinners, to get people engaged on it. I was actually looking uh, today. I have... We've had over 1,500 different investors come to our dinners in the last five years. It's just it, people there. Now, when I do it in Seattle, it's a little bit harder. Our culture tends to be more, maybe uh, less frenetic, more, I got to spend time with family, just a different culture, right? Different way of viewing the world. San Francisco, it's like, go, 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 go. There's six events every night. Uh, but I do it in San Francisco because I've lived there and I went to school there and I know a lot of people there and it's where venture capital still the epicenter is and I want to stay relevant and it's a good way for me to keep in the game. I do it in Seattle because I love Seattle, right? This is my home. I want to do it here. I want to make sure the ecosystem continues to build. These dinners are all about making sure that people in their silos get out of their silos and meet other people. And then we're doing Salt Lake City now because 
it just seems like a really interesting city that's been a little bit ignored. Only known like I think Silicon Slopes or something like yeah, that. Yeah, Silicon Slopes is what they call it. And there's some really interesting tech companies there. It's growing very quickly. It's a lovely place. I love skiing. I've been twice this year. So, but I but it's hard for me to go across the country. I mean, these are not money making. It's really kind of my community service. These are not money making adventures and ventures. But um, I can do, you know, it's easy to get to San Francisco in a day. It's easy to get to Salt Lake. It's easy to do it in my home. So that, so if someone says, in fact, someone today said, can you do New York? I said, I can, uh, you know, but I'm not sure a one-off in New York is going to work. So we're talking about it, but I have done it all over and I, and I truly enjoy doing it. My, in, in Seattle, I've got a, I used to have a, a pop-up restaurant. So I've got a bunch of chef relationships and restaurant relationships in San Francisco. We've got four different places we've done it at and they're all great and they work really well with me. Uh, so, so I build up, uh, I'm a foodie, as you mentioned, and I go out to a lot of restaurants and I connect and being in the wine business, I connect with the restaurants, I connect with the chef. So it kind of all comes together. Part of the reason I do the dinners is I love presenting my wines at the dinner. And it's a great way, again, without selling the wines that I can go and talk a little bit about and people can enjoy them in a, in a, over a good dinner party. There's a question for you. So just my point of view, like a lot of like Seattle, Salt Lake City, Austin, they're always trying to like be the next Bay Area, right? Yeah. But, but why? I mean, they're so far ahead of everyone else, right? Why can't you just so focus on being the best city you're in, right? Right, exactly. So uh, no one's going to be the next Bay Area. But it is fantastic how much more distributed, how much uh, the tech has enabled people to remotely start things. So the world's changed a lot. It used to be literally, if you didn't go to Sand Hill Road, and you didn't start in the Bay Area, you, you had no chance. You just did, there wasn't talent, there wasn't the money. That's it's not simply not true anymore. But in San Francisco has been pretty beat up as a city and a lot of people have moved out, but it still has an unbelievable ecosystem. Uh, but, but to your point, Silicon Slopes is focused on what they're focusing on. Austin does their thing. And, you know, over time, some of these cities kind of like you take Seattle, Seattle's really amazing at real estate tech. A lot of startups, spinoffs, right? We had Zillow and then people left there and did other things. So sometimes what happens in a city is it becomes almost, um, there are pockets of where they specialize and have superpower. You know, Seattle had an amazing run early in biotech, they had an amazing run in wireless. We've had gaming up here. And and the list goes on, and it's exciting to see because we can kind of define and bring people in who are passionate about those things. You go to Miami, and there's crypto and Web three, and you go to Puerto Rico, it's a little bit of that. And so, it, so I think sometimes cities kind of like like wine. You know, if you think about Oregon, you think of Pinot Noir. If you think about Argentina, you think about Malbec. Well, sometimes cities kind of need to figure out what they are around that. But it is also true today is so different than it was 10 years ago and certainly different than it was 35 years ago when I started doing this. Yeah, one thing about things changing, like, of course, COVID was a bad thing. A lot of people died. I'm not saying nothing about that, but some good to come out, right? Because I think it forced venture capitalists, like, do, do a Zoom pitch with someone, you know, in Bismarck, Dr. Cutter or other places. It's like, hey, you got to fly the Bay Area, right? So I think that is one plus. Oh I, think so. oh, I think so, too. And I think also, well, I mean, I think it changed work. You see remote teams, 
you see uh, not everybody. If you said to someone, you have to come to Seattle or you can't join this company, well, that immediately eliminated a potentially great employee. That's so I think we've now seen teams form where you couldn't have uh, before. So I think absolutely that's exciting. And and I think it's I think it's going to continue to evolve. I don't think we've seen we figured it out. I don't know what back to work means and what remote teams mean. And I think we're still figuring all that out and the tool set's going to get better. So, you, you know, back to your, your original question, the Bay area, the Bay area is the Bay area, but I don't think it's, I think it's going to diffuse. I think it's for, for the next decade or more, it's still that place, but it's really exciting to see, you know, I, as I said, I just got back from Portugal. Portugal has eight unicorns, a country of 10 million people. So, you know, that would have been unheard of 10 years ago. So it is, it's happening all over the world. Yes. Um, so next, can you talk about, um, I think it's called Founder Underground Dining Experience. Sure. That was my pop-up. Um, the food, the food and the food, I call it. The food, the Velvet Underground Dining Experience was a space I had uh, in South Lake Union, right in the middle of Amazon, really. And it was a... I brought in chefs from all over the country to do pop-ups around my wine. And we did a lot of wine. We did, again, over a thousand wine dinners, bringing in amazing, amazing chefs. Almost every chef of note in this town, and certainly at that time, there's some new chefs, but came in, we did five, six. At one point, we did a 15-course meal. Uh, and it was so, from the outside, you knew nothing of what was going on inside. You walked in and we created this really beautiful space, a little bit Argentina inspired. And uh, I got to serve my wine and do tastings. And we had all kinds of great events there as well. And it was just in a warehouse in South Lake, South Lake Union. And like, was there a certain type of food do you focus on? And then how did you find your chefs? Like, how do you- yeah, no, I mean, it's, you know, LinkedIn, go back to LinkedIn, right? So uh, it wasn't one type of food. I specifically, I, I'm happy that our wines pair with a wide variety of foods. So we did everything from vegan to seven courses of, of, of meat. We have one point we had a, a pig roasting in the back. We, we, we had all kinds of crazy things. Um, and the chefs, I, every time I went to a restaurant, I say, Hey, this food's amazing. Would you ever consider doing a pop-up with me? And at the time, pop-ups were pretty new. They weren't happening. Now they happen all the time. But when I was doing them, uh, no one had ever done this kind of thing on the scale that we did. It was a lot of work because every dinner was its own event. So you never you never got consistency. Um, we, but we brought chefs in from New York, from L.A., from Portland, from San Francisco. And it it uh, it really holds a place in my heart because there was some magic that happened at the food. Pop-ups, like, how do you determine like how much food to make? Is it like a RSVP list? You know how many people are coming? Or yeah, like- so people, it was um, w- people definitely had to RSVP because okay. we couldn't have done it otherwise. We held about again 40, 35 to forty for every dinner, um, and and everybody pretty much depending on their diet restrictions would be served the same meal with the same pairings of wine, but you know a lot of storytelling. So the chef would come out talk about why he presented this particular set of uh, courses. It was fun. Uh, one guy did, he was a fisherman growing up. And so this was his, re- relived his youth. 
you know, everybody had a story. And then of course, where the food came from, that was a story. And then, you know, the preparations, that was a story. So the, the chefs, we highlighted them. They were the celebrity. People could go back and see them cooking. People could go back and talk to them. People could, uh, it really experience dining in a way you just don't normally get to anymore. Is there a chef that was not invited? You want to invite like some kind of celebrity chef in your mind that, man, I want to convince this person to come do this pop-up. Uh, Thomas Keller <laughs> at the French laundry. <laughs> what we did have, it was fun. We had um, David Barzillet from lazy bear in San Francisco. When he was a pop-up in San Francisco before, now he's got a very successful restaurant. And it was really fun for, and and I didn't know would anyone know this guy had sold out faster than any other, he did four nights. It was crazy. It was beautiful. Um, so it was really fun to have him, but we had almost every chef in Seattle from, from, you know, Tom Douglas, Ethan Stoll, John Howie, Jonathan Sundstrom, Maria. I mean, we had almost everybody you can mention who back then was uh, a great is and but back then was noted as a great chef. So I know the, the focus on you know, on the chefs and their stories, whatever. But did you also like do like kind of a, a wine presentation? Absolutely. Kind of so everything was paired. Everything was explained. Um, and, it, and it really was fun for me to see how the wines paired with different courses and it was fun because people got to experience, you know, you go to a wine tasting, you're, you're given, you know, three, four, five, six glasses, try and remember it. When you have it with food, wine is such a different experience. For my money, it's way better, right? It's, it's the combination. In Europe, you, you mostly don't see wine bars. Wine is something to be with food. It's to be paired to a company because it's the combination that is where the magic in my mind happens. So, yeah, that was the whole... That was the whole point in in trying to show off, not in a traditional tasting room on in Napa Valley on Highway 29, right? Get them in, get them out. We this was this was something to be, as they say in Argentina, sobre mesa, time spent with friends around the dinner table. And that's what we were trying to create. Yeah, and the arm off says it's two years the same way, right? Each meal you get, you get a house of wine. I'm like, this is a house of wine, like. How good is the like the the good one, right? Like, right, exactly, exactly. So people never walked away uh, feeling anything but replete, feeling sated, feeling like they got to experience it a hundred percent. So I'll go back to investments real fast, right? So of course, you know, there's a lot of things in the news, like you no know, diverse uh, investments, you no know, females get like one percent, whatever the case may be. There's all work doing that. What's your take on this, right? It's like between like to me, like you're coming to the Bay Area, Seattle. You have a great chance to get an investment, you know. No, maybe you do, maybe you don't. But if you're in like, you know, Little Rock, Arkansas, it's harder. Bunville, it's harder. South Dakota, like, how, is there a way to fix this? Or is it like, well, first of all, you're asking would people in a different area who really don't understand venture, who don't understand startups generally, and of course, there are exceptions, but it's not a common thing. It's not. In San Francisco, you can't go to a coffee shop without a deal being pitched, without an idea being formed, without people talking about deals, right? It's common. It's comfortable. It's normal, right? To, to say, why isn't it happening? It's starting to happen. I'm from Omaha. There's now several venture funds there, but people are, it's risk capital and people work really hard to get their money. And it's, you're telling me that most of them fail. So why would I do that? 
it has to be part of the culture, I think. And it, it, it's one step at a time and it is starting to happen. But again, it's so comfortable and so normal in the Bay area that it it's happening at that kind of rate versus Omaha or Arkansas or, or where have you, but it, but it's out there. And also what's interesting is 15 years ago, you had to find the money locally if you were doing a startup in Omaha, right? Now you get on the web, you have a bunch of different ways of getting the word out about your startup. There's uh, fundraising platforms. So I think that's also making it more comfortable and more knowable for people as well. So it, it is changing, but you're right. I, I'm I'm starting and we can talk about it. Uh, my new fund in the search fund space, which I'm having to educate people every single day on what the heck is a search fund. So if you have to educate people, that means you put a, a second big step before uh, they can even consider investing in it, right? So when I started doing venture capital 30 some years ago, people say, what's venture capital? And that's laughable now. When I when I tell that story, people are like, really? People didn't know what venture capital was? Of course not. It was a few people, right? On Sand Hill Road. Well, now I'm doing it again. I, I, you know, I, I guess I'm a glutton for punishment, but I'm doing it again with search funds. But to your question, the world's getting savvier about all these things. And so there, there are more opportunities and there are more startups and there is more money that's that's willing to 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 uh, invest in these ideas. So so funny to start off the subject. I had a good friend in the, in the Bay Area, right? He put on a thing Facebook one time. If one more startup wrote in the Bay Area induces South say I'm so and so, I'm I'm building the next multi bearing company. I like to take you on a date. I will. I'm gonna you know. Right. I thought it was so funny. Right. Right. And it's incredible how quickly trends happen and and people follow on and copy. But that's that's innovation, too, in its own way. And that's what's exciting is it, it's it's never. But, you know, let's step back. This stuff is fun because it's never boring and it's constantly changing. And that suits my personality. So I love being in the middle of that. So let's talk about your search fund. What is what is that? What, <laughs> what is that thing? Yeah. So uh, search funds, uh, it's not my favorite name because it sounds like a venture capital fund, but it's not. Um, what it is, it was invented 40 some years ago uh, at Stanford Business School and Harvard Business School. And a student graduating with their MBA, instead of taking a traditional job at, say, JP Morgan or McKinsey Consulting or Google or Amazon, Instead of taking a job, they say, I'm going to raise a little pool of money called a search fund to search for a small company to buy and run. So a company that's profitable, two to $5 million in EBITDA, and they want to go out and acquire that company and run it as a CEO. So it's very entrepreneurial, but the person takes a lot of risk by doing that. The opportunity cost of joining a, a larger company, a more established company, where they're going to make make up a number five hundred thousand dollars a year, they're going to pay themselves minimum wage essentially, with the hope they can even find a company. Many don't find a company, and then they have to run it and make it successful before they get their big payoff. Okay, but it's where you truly are an entrepreneur. Now, why? Why does this exist or why is this exciting? The simple answer is in the last 40 years, if you look at 
the returns of different asset classes. So if you look at the return in, say, over 40 years of the stock market, depending on who's measuring and how they're measuring, it's somewhere around 7 8% annual return. Okay. If you look in that same period, 20 or 40 years, and you look at, say, private equity, and that could be venture, that could be leveraged buyouts, there's different forms of the returns, average annual returns is somewhere between 11 to 14 percent. A little bit higher, more risk, higher return, right? Search funds over that same 40 years has averaged 35 percent a year returns. It there is nothing that I'm aware of. Maybe your listeners will send in a note here that 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 has outperformed. In fact, it's not just a great number. It's in my mind so much better than any other asset class for so many reasons. It's but it's been its own small arcane world that was very hard to access as an investor. And what I'm trying to do very simply is to make it available to other investors. What are some reasons you think it's done so well versus other assets? Yeah, so it's taken me a little bit uh, to understand it. I mean, it's, at the highest level, it's quite easy to understand. At the highest level, you put a really smart person in an old mom and pop company that probably hasn't changed its ways in a long time. They're profitable, but they may still be using fax machines and you can imagine the type of company, but it's profitable. And remember, the the seller is maybe 60, 65, 70 years old. The kids don't want to take over the family business. He He's put his heart and soul into this. So he wants an exit, right? But because it's a two to four, $5 million profitable company, uh, the multiple that you pay to acquire this company is on average four times, okay? So uh, that compares with a company that once you get up to say 10, 15, $20 million in profits in EBITDA, then it becomes a multiple of seven to 10X. So the arbitrage of buying this company relatively cheaply, growing it, and then selling it at a higher multiple naturally leads to a lot of value creation and a really great return. But that's that by itself does not explain why the 35%. The reason for the 30, but does that make, let me stop there. Does it, that make does. sense it so does. far what I've said? Yes. But, and by the way, these are not sexy businesses. These are dental clinics and street cleaning and window landscaping washers, and janitors. window washers and airplane parts and heartland. You know, this is what makes America great businesses, right? But uh, but the, but there's more to the story, and it's layered. The way I like to describe it is to say, look, they're given the playbook in business school. You go to Stanford, you've got a class teaching you exactly what you need to do to find, acquire, and run the company. So you get the playbook, okay? Then the people teaching the playbook or the class actually mentor, coach, and invest in the searcher. So they're picking some of their best students. The students self-select because they're willing to give up the opportunity cost of going to work. So you know they're really all in on this thing. And they've got some of the best, you know, YPO or Vistage-like 
support helping them all the way through this thing. In addition, when they acquire, the seller stays on and mentors again. And also their payoff, the seller's payoff is directly tied to continuing results. Okay. So, and then, and and it feels like, and then I get to say five more times because there are so many pieces to why this is successful that I don't know another asset class where that's the case. And go through those. But what I want to say to you is for me, it's exciting beyond exciting and something I, I feel like I've found the thing I really want to do for the next couple of decades because, because the, 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 the searchers, the students are incredible people. They're gritty. They're tough. They usually came from entrepreneurs. Their values, I mean, we check for it, but their values are strong and they want to learn. Venture used to be like this, but venture is feels to me, if I'm being a little bit cynical, and this is not true for everyone, but there's more than a few times where I felt like someone basically was implying, give me the check and then go away. That they, an old guy like me, what, what could I possibly know? Right. That is not the case in search. And people in the search world have been in it for decades and decades because they love it. And people collaborate and people are really interested in giving back. I know lots of searchers who had a successful acquisition and exit, and they've come back to help the next generation do it. It is it is so much fun. Why, why do you think it's such a smart community of people doing this? Well, number one, there's only so many business schools. That teach it right. Um, number two, it's hard as hell, right? It is. It, it's not for the faint of heart, and and it is super lonely. You sit in a in a room often by yourself, getting on the phone, sending out emails. Would you be interested in selling your company? Would you be interested in selling? how many people want to do that? Not very many people, but that's part of it. And and there's a lot of rejection, and there's a lot of deals that fall apart. Right. Now, the businesses, I'm guessing they have to be profitable in order to take part of the program. Correct. So that's what I'm saying. So there's so there's usually two to five million dollars of EBITDA earnings. So it can't be, hey, I'm losing five million dollars a year. Come buy my business. No, absolutely (laughs) not. So you make a great point, which is the qualifying of the business is very important. And and what happens is the searcher has eight to 10 investors around the table who if the searcher said, oh, I want to buy this company. And everyone looks at him and says, we're not buying it. <laughs> it doesn't happen because the search, the people who invest in the searcher are the same people that, that the searcher goes to on the acquisition. So if I put a check for $25,000 to help you search for two years, you're going to come back to me if you find something and say, could you put in a half a million dollars for the acquisition? That's just an example. But but so the, the, there's a real check and balance on making sure the acquisition makes sense. And the people who are investing in search have done hundreds and hundreds of these deals. So there's incredible pattern recognition that's happening. Does that make sense? It does. So this is going to be a life's work oh, yeah. from this, now to uh, whatever. Yeah. I'm, I'm so excited about it. I've been in the last year, I've been to four search fund conferences at Wharton, MIT, Stanford and Harvard. And the energy in those rooms is absolutely amazing. And by the way, get back to your point, women can do this. Underrepresented people can do this. It's not, no one's holding anybody back from doing this. 
if they, if they are up for their journey and they think they can run something. So let's talk about Stanford real fast. So like the Stanford stereotype is, you know, graduate from there. Someone can give you $10 million off your business, all these advantages. Is that really true? Or is that a myth? That's an interesting way of putting it. Um, I think that, first of all, no, I don't think that's true. <laughs> what I do think is true is that Stanford in general fosters a entrepreneurial mindset if you want it. You know, they were one of the first schools I knew of that you could go in and design your own major. That act of designing your own major, if you did it, is entrepreneurial when you think about it. It's creative, right? Stanford is in the heart of Silicon Valley. Guess what? Lots of speakers come on campus. There's lots of examples. The newspapers are talking about startup. It's in the air. It's in the water. So, you know, I know people, it's fun to go there because it starts, it's like a camp for entrepreneurs, if you want that. That's not the whole school, but it certainly is available in a way that I don't think is true at most schools, just because it has such a rich history of it and because of where it's located and because the people who have been successful come back and want to help others uh, do that as well. So to the extent that you do want to do that, there's a ton of resources, a ton of opportunity to go and find those people who would give you money to start your company. Is there any school out there that can with Stanford all those kind of thing from your point of view that kind of doing the same thing? Of course, not Silicon Valley, but like has the same entrepreneurial spirit. Well, I think I think honestly, uh, most schools have it, it takes search funds because that's a very entrepreneurial activity. So I think start at Stanford and Harvard today. Nineteen of the top twenty business schools have search. They teach search. Okay, uh, I think most schools are responding to what students want and the world we're in. It's no longer the case. Kids are going to have six, seven, 10 jobs, right? They have to learn how to hustle. They learn how to be creative. They learn how to be, learn how to be flexible, right? All of that's part of being an entrepreneur. So Stanford, Stanford cares about this. It's part of the ethos there. But, you know, lots of companies get started out of Berkeley. A lot of companies get started out of UCLA. I, I'm sure a lot of companies get started out of Harvard. I mean, I, I'm sure it's much broader than I know. I can't really speak to it because I'm focused on the Bay Area and I'm focused in Seattle and I'm focused on Stanford. Um, you know, UW has some of it. UW's got a great computer science program. So the talent up here is great. I'm not sure, you know, it's hard to compete with the Bay Area for probably the entrepreneurial management talent. But there's a lot of great companies getting started in Seattle. If you're a college nowadays, this is kind of off the subject, you're college nowadays, how do you think they're going to convince kids to actually go to college, right? You can go University of YouTube, you know, all the free courses, you know, like, do you really need to, need to pay a college like $100,000 going debt, you know, like, how do you think that's going to play This is out? the whole Scott Galloway uh, conversation who believes that you should just get into Stanford and Harvard, not go and just put on your LinkedIn that you got in. <laughs> and I, and honestly, I'm not sure you need to go. Um, if my daughter said to me, dad, I don't think I want to go to college. Here's what I want to do. I want to go start this, or I want to go experience this. There's nothing that says the four-year college is the only path, right? And how much learning goes on there 
there are so many opportunities to learn in so many different ways today. And that's just going to get accelerated with AI. No, I don't, I don't believe that for a minute. And, and, you know, it's interesting, at least half, maybe more of what I got out of Stanford was the friendships and the socialization and, and learning just what it's like to grow up a little bit. So there are other, there's lots of ways to get that. And so, no, I'm not a believer that that is the only path. And I think it's hard for me to imagine that the economics of, of universities even make sense going forward, maybe for a few. Uh, but I don't know how you have this physical structure all over the country supporting it. And why are we teaching the same economics 101 class in a thousand different? It makes no that makes no sense to me. Right. Yeah. So yeah. so it has to change in my mind. It has to change. And I, there's a huge opportunity to, to teach people from the very basics, from reading and math at the early stages, all the way through college. And and I'm excited to, to see to see that happen. I don't know. Do you think college is going to be like able or even willing like to make these changes? Like you know, AI is coming, ChatGPT is coming, all this stuff is coming right. I mean, I just think seems like the bureaucracy is going to be like a stifling mechanism against all this. Well, changes. the free market's a wonderful thing, isn't it? If yes, they, it if, is. If, yeah. if, if if they don't do it, people will go elsewhere. Uh, I think you bring up a a rich topic around how fast things are changing, how fast new technologies are coming and our human ability to grok it, to comprehend it, to react to it, to an integrate it. It's going to be hard. It's going to be a hard 10 years. Oh, this is a podcast. I can't remember what it was, but this guy was saying that in, in his lifetime, he went from ping pong to what we're doing right now. Right. right. And like, it's like matter 30 years. Right. It's amazing. It, it is so extraordinary. I do not think people understand how wild the next 10 years are going to be with regards to change. Um, it's funny. I uh, I am going to explore getting an EU passport in addition to my US passport. Not because I don't love this country. Not because I don't uh, see myself as an American and want to be here. But for my daughter, I have no idea what the world's going to look like in 30 years, yeah. right? And giving options makes sense to me at that level, just because we all know there's good and there's bad that comes out of all of this all the time. And uh, the ability to do larger things on scale, good and bad, is presenting itself in a way that we're we're not used to. I'm not sure we're ready for and let's hope, you know, it, it reminds me, getting back to the very beginning of this discussion, why every day we should be kind to each other. Yeah. Because this stuff is real and it's going to be dramatic and unforeseen. You know, they talk about black swans, the event that occurs once in a lifetime. I, I don't I don't think that's the definition anymore. Yeah, I know AI is like a lot of people scared of it or whatever. Or robots were like, I was, I was getting gas at a, at a Costco the other day. And this lady was in front of me, like she kind of elderly, right? She just she just says having trouble, right? I thought myself, what if she had like AI robot, AI robot assist, right? Maybe right. four, three, five, and did the stuff for her, right? It's going to be like, gonna like, be like the Jetsons, man. Remember? I know. Rosie? Rosie yeah. the robot. Was I, forgot, I forgot about Rosie. <laughs> exactly. And like, I don't think the general average American, average award citizen knows like what's coming. Like they have no clue. I have a feeling that's true. Uh, and what I love about venture and search funds, I feel like I have a front row seat 
I love thinking about this stuff um, because it's it is coming. There's no stopping it. You know, the horse is out of the barn. So let's figure out how to do good with it and and help people get along better and make the world a kinder place. But but we we've already seen there are people who don't want that. Yeah. Right. So there's a lot of work to be done. Yeah. So next thing, do you still are you still involved with Wonderground Coffee? Yes. Yeah. I love Jody. Uh, Jody Hall is a friend and an entrepreneur, and she was at Starbucks, and she uh, actually has done several startups. And this is in Seattle, also. This is in Seattle. Okay. They've got a cafe up in Capitol Hill, and adaptogenic mushrooms, uh, cordyceps, and uh, reishi, and several other varieties are just really good for you. And the East Asia has known this for a long time. And now you're starting to see functional beverages, you know, vitamin water was an early precursor, but there's so much more we know now and we're including in our daily ritual and coffee is a daily ritual. So she has a one store in Capitol Hill. Yeah. But she sells, uh, she's got a great program. She's selling within the corporate offices, within the cafeterias, at places like Google and Microsoft and Meta. So the employees can feel on their daily ritual, like they're getting additional uh, supplements in their diet. And uh, the coffee is great. You know, several people had come out with mushroom based uh, superfoods and and drinks, but they just weren't very good. And I think with Jody's uh, background at Starbucks, she's really, she's nailed it. The, the coffee is great. I have it every day. Uh, and how long have you lived in Seattle? I've been, I came in on 8888. Okay. So a little while, a little while. A little while. And Seattle always been a coffee town. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but you know, it was funny. I, I literally remember the first time I went to a Starbucks. And the early days of Starbucks, they had these huge poster boards explaining what's a latte, what's a cappuccino, what's an Americano. And it was, I remember trying to order the first time. And was intimidated. Oh yeah, me too. Like, right, like uh, yeah, it's, I just it's want ridiculous. coffee. <laughs> yeah, and, and hear people in front of you like a uh, half sprinkle of this, this and that, some oat milk, uh, and then know this, this attempt like what in the world is going on? Right, and now it's 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 so common. It's great. I actually really still they call it a daily luxury. That was kind of their positioning, and but I love the story how Howard came here and had this vision. And nobody wanted to back him. He went to hundreds of people. Yeah, I saw that. Because, yeah. because everybody was like, like, why would anyone pay $3 for a cup of coffee? And it takes, you know, I, I admire and try and model that kind of don't give up. No, it's just the beginning of a conversation. I, I still feel that same passion energy for the things I do. And I, and I take inspiration. You talked about that early from people like Howard when he did that. Why do you think there's so many like great coffee companies in Seattle? Like there's all these mama pops, right? Like there's one couple of blocks from here. Like, it's, it's hard to find a bad cup of coffee anywhere in Seattle, right? You think it's just the entrepreneurial spirit of how coffee is? Like what do you think? The well, everybody's is? up their game.
Actually, you can go to almost any, for sure, you can go to any major city now and you can get great coffee, right? And people have really refined their taste. I remember wine. What was the first wine you had? It was probably some swill. And then after a while, you started tasting more and you're like, no, I like this. No, this is better. And, and I think with coffee, we've all practiced it a lot to get to flavor profiles we know we like. And it turns out we now can say, oh, that's a bad cup of coffee. Before coffee was just coffee. And now there's bad coffee and there's good coffee. But I think what happened with Starbucks being here is people spun out like Jody's doing and are creating and innovating and riffing on the idea. And so it's like beer. I mean, Seattle is one of the first microbrew towns, right? We have so many great beers here, right? Wine. We have great wineries in Washington. So a lot of it. And and by the way, it gets back to your conversation about Sand Hill Road and the Bay Area and Silicon Valley. What's happening in Seattle is you're seeing more startups and more startups and more money coming in. It's it builds on itself. And that's what's happened with coffee and other things. So next, let's talk about your Hannah God of Wines. First, I'm sure the story behind the name Hannah God. I, I know what it is. But you can tell people what the, the, the thing course. is. I, good, because I haven't told it ever before. I'm kidding. <laughs> I actually enjoy telling this story. But when I went down there in 2007, I did not intend to purchase acreage and a vineyard and hook up with the greatest winemaker down there to, to make a brand. But once I did, um, I, there was wine involved, maybe. Uh, once I did, I thought I, I love names. I love. Uh, I haven't talked about the name for my for my uh, search fund fund, but but I love naming things. That would have been a career I could have had. You, I love it. So uh, with wineries, I went to Napa last weekend. We went to four wineries. I bet you most people in this group couldn't name three of those four wineries. People just forget. So the the name is a lost opportunity to connect to the product and to the place. And so I was thinking, okay, my vineyards in Argentina, how am I going to how am I going to really show people this is of place and also captures the passion of the people. And so there's two things. Uh there's a story and then there's a story. The first story is I went to the vineyard in Mendoza in the Uco Valley in this gorgeous place with the Andes Mountains right behind as a backdrop. I mean, it's stunning. If you haven't been there, I would encourage everyone to go. It's just terrific. And I set foot in the land I was ultimately purchased. And I literally had a moment. And I can't explain it other than saying, I'd been there in a past life. I felt something different. It's something, I, it's even still today, I get a little bit of chills thinking about it because it was a different feeling. So it was meant to be in some way. And so that to me also represents the hand of God. Wine in general is kind of magical to me. And that represents the hand of God. But but those two stories are both true and meaningful for me, but they don't capture necessarily Argentina. So I wanted to also come up with a name that said Argentina through and through, but but you'd have to know the background and then the light bulb will go off. And that has happened 10,000 times. And so the quick story is, I like to say to people, what's the world's largest religion? And usually they say something like Christianity or Muslim, Islam. Uh, but I say, no, that's like a billion and a half people. That's, that's not the biggest religion. The biggest religion is soccer. 
football, right? Two and a half billion zealots. And, uh, and so uh, in 1986, Argentina won the World Cup. And they won it in big part because Diego Maradona, the, one of the most famous soccer players in the history of the game, scored a goal off his hand. And it's a great YouTube video to watch. The photograph's amazing. But they didn't have instant replay in 1986. And yet everybody in the stadium, except for one person, saw that it was off his hand. And that was the referee. So the goal counts. They win the soccer game. And afterwards, the journalists in the press room say, Diego, come on, man, that went off your hand. And he looked at him. He said, no, 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 no. That went off the hand of God, which is such a brilliant answer because does he mean it went off? Was it a divine moment? Or he is God? Or <laughs> And so when you say hand of God and you say Argentina to most people, they immediately go, ah, of course. So it's really fun. It's really been fun. And I've become much more of a soccer fan. I, I love the game. I understand the game better. Uh, and so that's been fun to combine it. And those people are passionate. I don't know if you watched the World Cup this year, but I was at a bar with 400 people in Seattle, all Argentines. And we celebrated. That's a great story. Yeah. When I, when we need to click the hand of God. I, said, I know, I know what this is about. Yeah, exactly. I know what this is about. Yeah. So hopefully it captures the passion and the wine brings great memories to people. So you, you told us about how you went to Argentina for a visit and had no, no sense of doing what you're doing, but you got into the wine business. Of course, like any business, it's not easy. I'm, I'm guessing. <laughs> Can you talk about some of the channels? Like, you know, like how do you do wine distribution? How do you decide like what sure. type of wine, like all, all those kind of things? Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot there to unpack. Um, I sometimes like to say I have gone from what I believe to be the worst business model, wine, to the best business model, search funds. And wine is really a tough and, business. And wine, like you plant your seeds, it's going to be like a certain number of years where you know if it's, it's four, good wine or profitable. Leaves. Right, right, right. Well, Look, just break it down into what makes what I did particularly hard. First of all, you have country risk. Argentina is a very difficult place to do business. Everybody knows that. I just needed to have it hit me on the side of my head. Second thing is you're dealing in the wine business with changing tastes. Younger people don't want the same thing as our generation wants. You're also dealing with competition and not just competition, which has, by the way, doubled if not more, number of wineries since I started. But think about the competition for vice, I'll call it. Pot, microbrews, microdistilleries. That's all competing with that glass of wine, right? So you have a competition aspect that's unlike almost any other industry I know of. In addition, put a finer edge on that competition comment by saying you have a bunch of non-economically motivated Competitors, people who want their mansion in Napa, who don't care if they ever make wine or make money on their wine, right? So how do you compete in that world? Now, I haven't even mentioned farming risk, regulatory risk. Uh, we're in the middle of a situation today where a bunch of our wine is at a warehouse that's going out of business. And I'm not sure what I'm doing. I actually was thinking about canceling this. and trying to deal with it. I'll deal with it right after we get done talking. But again, not something I expected to happen today. So there are so many pieces to it that are hard. And then we could talk about distributors. 
who that's not a great business. And when you have a small boutique winery, it's called hand selling. You have to go tell the story. Well, most distributors, bless them for their work, but they're not, they want to, they want an easy sell. They want to move boxes of wine. Well, hand of God is a boutique sale. You got to go tell the story. You got to get people trying it. So that's hard. So mostly I've self-distributed. We've been in, uh, we had 11 distributors. Mostly I sell it now. Uh, if people are listening to the show, they can reach out to me on handofgodwines.com and I'll take care of them. Just mention you heard me on the show and we'll give a really nice friends and family because because we want to support what you're doing too. But it's 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 a small business, right? And I've been slugging away at it for a long time and I love it. I love the people in it. I like the culture of it. The business business of it is is tough. So do you have to pay any kind of, I think it's called import tax we to do. bring the wine in? Is yeah, that- we do. There's all kinds of, you know, we, we, we produce all the wine down there. We bottle it down there. We get it on a ship. It goes to Oakland. It goes to a warehouse in Napa. And then we distribute it from there. And how do you like maintain the quality of the wine through all these shipping and stuff? There's, I mean, it, the good news is we're not the first to do this and, and putting it on a ship, it's temperature controlled. Okay. Trucking is temperature controlled. Not cheap. I mean, nothing, nothing about the wine industry is cheap from the barrels to the vineyards, to the transportation, yeah. to the storage. It's, it's, I mean, everyone has to get paid, right? Yeah. Turns out. And, and, and I think we do remember that once next time you're at a restaurant and you order a glass of wine, like $8 for a glass of wine. Are you right. kidding me right now? Eight. I, I want to go there. Yeah. You're not drinking booze for them or strawberry here, right? Exactly. I didn't appreciate uh, to your point, I did not appreciate how much goes into that glass of wine. A lot, <laughs> a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. So I, I think Argentina, like, like obviously France, Italy, Napa Valley, known for like being wine places. Correct. What's the country out there, or even the region of the United States, that you think is going to be upcoming? Portugal. Wine Portugal. Oh my gosh, Portugal has incredible wine. It's challenging for Americans because they have varietals we've never heard of. But if you go to Portugal and you drink wine in a restaurant, their basic house wine is delicious. So yeah, I would encourage people to try. Uh, obviously, port is famous, and that's lovely for after dinner. Uh, Vino Verde is a is a pretty f- well known uh, light summer drinking, but they have so many interesting other wines. I'd encourage people uh, to 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 try because they do a lot of blends, and I think blends uh, often are the most complex and interesting wines of all wines. What is a person called who actually takes care of the winery, like the overseer? Yeah, I, I mean, we have Santiago that, Achibal, who who is really oversees it all. So, I mean, so he, how do you he's a winemaker. He's a winemaker. <laughs> okay, um, but as a winemaker, he's also our agronomist. He's working on the he's the he, he deals with uh, everything from selection of the vineyards to uh, harvesting the fruit to making the wine. Uh, he's a consultant with me on on what we should make how much we should make, what our bottles are, what the corks are. There's a lot that goes into, again, to that one little bottle of wine. So let's suppose you have a bottle of wine and it's like, it's 10, 15, 20 years old. Is a point where you say, okay, if this one keeps on getting old, it's going to turn into vinegar and I'm being good. What's the cutoff part where like, you know, you should stop warm, okay, this is a collector's piece, whatever the case should be, and just drink the wine. Well, we did something very different. We held back our wines because we think if you make a good wine, if you're using good oak, if you're making it in the proper way, you're not cutting corners, you're not using additives, and you're using great fruit, 
the wine should last for a decade or more, but it also depends on how you store it. But all of our wines we're selling now are 10 years old. They're tasting great. Like this, like now is a great time to, to drink our wines. But most people, 98 plus percent of all wines are consumed within 48 hours yeah. of buying it, right? Yeah. But there is a very different experience with wines that are well-made that have been aged. Mm -hmm. I encourage people to try it because it's, it's an epiphany, really. And you go, oh, that's what wine is. Because it's had a chance to, to blossom, if you will. I mean, wine is alive. And so in the bottle, it's changing. And it really does take on new characteristics just with age. What do you see the future of Hannah Gata wines? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I you know, I, uh, there, our name and brand have are, are bigger than our actual production. Um, I still love the industry, uh, but I'm, you know, open to. Uh, it's hard for me to get to Argentina. It's hard to uh, actually produce there. Um, and it's just a competitive as hell field. So I'm thinking about what options we have right now during COVID, we stopped making wine to, to think about this very question, which is why, uh, you know, right now, if people reach out to me, I'm, uh, I'd love to, I'd love to get them some wine to try. Oh, I brought you a bottle. Oh, thank you. Oh, wait, I, I almost forgot that. So, <laughs> This is a this is one of the most unusual white wines okay. you will Thank ever you. ever have. Um, so it's a Viognier Marsan, and uh, and uh, you should drink it. Uh, unlike other white, first of all, it's aged, which most white wines aren't. It's gonna uh, open up in the glass. A lot of white wines don't do that. It's um, got color because we left it on skin during the fermentation. It's a really unusual. It's almost like a red wine disguised as a white wine. And don't drink it too cold because you want okay. the aromatics to come out. But please enjoy that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. So it, when you do do the grape harvest, the the I guess I'll call it like the grape waste, like stuff you don't put in the wine. What happens to that? Well, there's there's buyers. Is I mean, there's okay. bulk producers. Okay. That that will, will um, we hand pick our fruit. We only use ten percent of what we pick. We're only using the best grapes. So, but there's people who will put it into bulk. And can, can you tell, I guess you can tell based on the weather of the year, how good or how bad the crop's yeah, going to be? That's right. I mean, certain years just have had perfect growing conditions and certain years, you know, take the fires in California. I mean, there's, there's a little bit of issue with that, as you can imagine. Some years there's hail, some years the, the, the frost happens too late. So yeah, different years, different, different outcomes. But again, that's why it's fun. People think, oh, I, I know this. Hand of God, 2012, well, 13 or 11 or 10, they're all going to be different because those growing conditions were different. And plus, if you drink the wine, we're too going to change it up too, right? That's exactly right. So um, next, back to investment piece. So, of course, I, I search you everywhere. You're on AngelList. But it does sound like AngelList is like it was like it was back in the day, right? Am I wrong? I like, think back to AngelList, everyone's on it, getting invested, whatever. Now it's like, I won't say it's doubt off, but like, it's yeah, like I different. It, look, I think Angelus was very innovative and brought a lot of energy to angel investing and to people who wanted to start syndicates. So it was, it's it's still an amazing platform and a leader. But I think we're in a little bit of a, a naturally with the economy doing what it's doing, a little bit of a pause. People are digesting. These were a pretty wild two and a half years with interest rates being low, 
lots of investment happening, lots of company formation. I don't think AngelList is going away. I think it's just people are are, are digesting what has happened. And, and now it, we'll take the latest hot thing, AI. Lots of companies are being formed. Lots of money is being uh, invested in that. So there's actually a lot of... It's not like it was, for sure. And I did several syndicates on there. And as I said, I'm more focused on search funds right now. But I still, I still look at it. I still... Uh, see a lot of deals, and I still think it's a really important part of the whole ecosystem. And John, you also own this new thing called NFX Signal, right? Uh, NFX Signal. Uh, I don't know about that one. Sorry, you're on there too. Uh, okay, uh, I'll say to you. Yeah, I found you on there. It's like a another investment platform. Oh, it's another investment platform. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah. So to be clear, I sometimes go on things just to uh, see what they're about. Okay, but I don't actively participate. I actively participate on Angel List. Okay, um, but there's so many now. I, I try and spend a little bit of time almost every day looking at something new. So I have a sense of uh, of what kind of things are coming down the pike. Okay. All right. So like, 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 like sort of other best, like you're there on platforms that are on there. Like what's the best way, like somebody reach out to you, right? Angel list. And if, if- oh, they can just, um, I'm on LinkedIn or, okay. or I'm happy to John at hand of God wines.com or John at Stainberg.com. Um, I'm happy to, uh, respond. I, you know, I answer all my own emails and uh, uh, if, if, if people want to get wine or they want to have an idea, they want to run by me or or what about search funds? I'm really interested in talking about that. Um, yeah, if, if you can feel free to, to share. So I read somewhere that when you talk to founders, they need to blow you away with their, with their sales ability. Can you talk about the importance of founders and sales? Yeah, I mean, look, it, it, different founders have different skill sets. Uh, one of the things um, uh, with search funds is the founder has to really be broad uh, because you're searching. So that requires one set of skills. You're selling because you want someone to sell you a company. So you have to sell yourself. Then you have to have management skills, right? So those are three big skill sets and there's more. Um, but what I think there's a there's almost an unwritten cultural norm around salespeople being bad or sales being bad. I don't agree with that. Um, I think it's, you're always selling. And I think it is such an important skill. If you're, if you're an entrepreneur, you have to sell to raise money. You have to sell to hire great people. You have to sell your products. Selling is inherent in everything we do. And if someone is uncomfortable with that, that they better find someone who isn't, who will supplement what they're doing. Because you, at the end of the day, you still have to do that. In a noisy and noisier world, that is extremely important. So, John, for your own investment portfolio, are, are you like a, you have like your own VC firm, your angel investor? Yeah. So, I uh, have been doing some angel investing and I have been a general partner in three different venture funds and a venture partner in several venture funds. Right now, I am raising this search fund fund. And so, I'll be the general partner of that. And that's really what I'm I'm most focused on right now. And you talked, that's a good point. Like, I think a lot of star founders are like, oh, I need to raise money, right? Then I realized that you have to raise money too, right? Right. And I'm guessing it's probably harder for you because like a startup like myself, we have all these VCs out there. You have to write, I guess like multi mega rich people, right? Yeah. Can you family talk about the challenges offices, of that? 
it's again, I think I start off by saying I have to explain what search funds are. So most people haven't carved out a little allocation for search funds. So I have to do that. And, and I'm not raising a huge fund by fund standards. You know, so many funds are hundreds and hundreds of millions, if not more. We're, we're raising tens of millions uh, because the asset class isn't that big. But so I have to go to high net worth people and I have to go to family offices. I have to explain this. I am so passionate about it. I honestly don't know why someone who has it, who has the means wouldn't have some allocation into the best performing asset class, but it doesn't mean that they know about it or that they've thought about it. And so it takes, it's a process. It's not, it's not a, uh, I'm not, uh, it's not an impulse purchase, right? And so it's it's it is a longer sales uh, than if I was just going out and raising a venture fund, for example. And so, um, for for the search funds, like I know, like they'll say, like for like a startup founder, like this fundraising seasons, right? Is the same thing like when y'all have to like uh, find funds? Is there a fundraising season for y'all too? Is there a fundraising season? Yeah. Uh, yes, ish. I mean. Uh, you know, generally speaking, raising in the summer when people are on vacation or with their family or raising in December when it's the end of the year, pretty difficult. But but, you know, people are are generally again, institutions are different than individuals. So uh, it, it's kind of an all year thing. And I have the good fortune of knowing a number of people. And so it's not a cold call that I'm going out, but it's going to be. It's going to be a lot of conversations and, you know, I've explained hand of God 10,000 times. I'll be explaining search funds 10,000 times. I think one thing, like I had trouble with the first, right? I think a lot of founders too, like, they're like, man, I've explained this 10,000 times. I have to do it again. Well, yes, you do, because it's the first time explaining to this person, right? Yeah. And thankfully, I don't mind doing that or I don't tire of it. And I honestly feel like every time I explain it, I'm expanding the universe of people that know about this. And that's only going to be good for the whole category. In the past, when you were investing, was a certain category you invested in or like certain industry or agnostic? I was pretty broad. What my original, I've always thought, how can I be differentiated? Search funds are me being differentiated, right? No one's ever done what I'm doing there in terms of a fund of funds. But when I started out in venture capital, my positioning was, how do I bridge Seattle and San Francisco? I had worked at Microsoft. So people, Microsoft was more relevant at that time to startups. And so I could go and people wanted to know what was Microsoft doing in that category? Or how could we sell to Microsoft or partner with Microsoft? So my whole position was, how could I add value? Whatever I do this, I think about what is my differentiator and how do I add value? And if I can answer those two things, then I think I have the beginnings of something that could be of value and could be interesting to people who are asking themselves, well, why you? Really, that's what it comes down to, why you? And what's happened with ventures are so many funds that look the same now and I think to myself, how is everybody looking the same going to do anything different? And so that's why I specifically think about those two things when I go out to raise a new fund or when I'm uh, uh, going out and asking people if they want to invest. When you are investing, and of course, I'm sure founders are coming to you, you know, pitch decking, all that kind of stuff. Right. Like what made a founder, 
a founder or founding team sent out to you? Gosh, it's not one thing. It really, it's, it's, do they show up? Do they show up? And what I mean by that is not just, are they in the room? Do they show up knowing enough about what, about me, about the situation, about the category, about their own stuff, about their customers? It's, it's pretty easy. You know, everybody has a recording. I like to get people off their recording and interrupt them and ask them questions maybe they don't expect because I want to know what it is that's truly in there. And when they're in recording mode and playback mode, you don't get that, right? And then, of course, you, you know, whenever I invest in people or companies, it's a relationship. So is it a relationship I want to be in? I ask myself that. Right. And then what about their values and their integrity and their commitment to um, to success, but also to um, really just being good, kind people that are going to be additive to the world? I care about that more than I used to. When I started out, it was all about are we going to make money or not? And I'm just not that person anymore. Of course, that's important. Of course, that's what I want to do. But there's more to it. And I know that's not an either or thing. You can have both. Here's one for like as a founder of founder team, you know, you, you know, you have to do sales, marketing, product, tech, on and on, right? What was the one area where the founder said, you know, I'll be honest with you, we we suck at X. You mean, okay, I'm fine with you suck at X, as long as you don't suck at this other stuff. Well, that's actually happened a fair number of times, right? I mean, people, people, I, it's really important to suss out whether or not people know what they suck at, right? Self-awareness, right? What I often will say, well, what do you, what do you still need? And don't tell me developers or money, <laughs> right? I know everybody needs that. So what do you still need? What do you, what do you, in a year from today, what, what are the categories of things you have filled in? I always ask that question. And, and people, you, you know, if they're, if they're, at all pros, if they're at all experienced, if they're at all mature, they will expect that question. They will have an answer for that question. And so don't go into details, obviously, but like, can you talk about an investment you did where like, man, I, I can't say it's be a home run, but I feel really feel good about this one, right? The team is good, the product's good, like this, this, uh, I, I feel good about this. And then it, it just totally flopped. Well, you know, what I like to say is, uh, if you ask a venture capitalist, what is their favorite deal? It's the last one they did, right? Because it's, it's, they're most excited. They just spend time on it. They're sure it's going to work. It's like saying, do I think Matt Rule is going to be a good coach at Nebraska? Yeah, today I do, right? You wouldn't have invested unless you thought that. But I will say, and I'm not directly answering your question, I will say that I'm constantly surprised. Some things that look like they weren't going to work at all ended up working. Maybe it took a long time. And some things that I was sure was going to work didn't work. And so, you know, part of the reason uh, I have taken the strategy with my search fund to do it a fund of funds is at the end of the day, we're going to have 120 to 150 companies in the portfolio. Why? Because I can't tell you which ones are going to succeed big and which ones just aren't going to work that well. I can't, I wish I, I wish I was that good. I, I, over the years, I've, I've mostly made some good bets, but I've made a tough, couple really, really bad bets, right? And so yeah, I think that's the thing for investors and angel investors in particular. 
you got to have enough in the portfolio to weather the bad ones because there will be bad ones. So when you had your, your portfolio companies, did you want them to give updates like once a week, once a month? No, it's totally up to them. Totally depends where they are in the stage of the okay. life of the company. Earlier on, uh, probably more frequently because I want to be helpful if they wanted to give it to me. But you know, generally speaking, I'm looking for once a quarter kind of updates from most of my portfolio companies. But I want them. I want it to be real, real updates, not just hey, you know, things are good. Because <laughs> I know that there's a lot more to it than that, and I and we have a set of uh, key performance indicators KPIs uh, that we that we generally set out that we're looking at uh, to to be reporting on. What's some like upcoming tech that excites you? Like you talked about AI before. Like what tech like really excites you in the future? Well, I think it's hard not to talk about AI, but there is. I, I, let's just take space. Space is absolutely going to be mind-blowing, I think, what's coming down the pike with uh, payloads that will be able to go up, the the ability to uh, use telescopes in a way we never have before, satellite launches. I mean, the uh, stuff we're seeing on the James Webb telescope is mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing. And they're going to they're going to get a double that. You know, it's like the yeah. next one's coming, too. You see this one picture, like all those dots are galaxies with how do we not? And I also think going the other way is going to be fascinating. The oceans, right? We, we don't even talk about that very much, but that's going to be absolutely fat. We don't know. That's most of the world. We don't even know much about it. Almost nothing. Right. So I think that's going to be, I think personalized medicine is going to be mind blowing. I mean, we are using such blunt instruments today to treat cancers and, and other things. Personalized medicine, we're going to, we're going to be able to say, you know, it's like the, the Star Trek where Bones is doing the little tricorder, whatever that thing was called, uh, to, to do that. That's not what that was not the tricorder, but, but you know, yeah, what I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, sorry, Trekkies out there. Uh, and, and so I think we're not far away from this stuff. Energy, uh, the amount of money going into safer nuclear. Yeah. They, they did and, the, some kind of fusion thing. Right. Where like, all the, all the mega billionaires are investing in that. So, you know, all of that, is really big stuff. When I started this, there was one thing, you know, it was enterprise software. And then there was another thing called the internet. And these were big things. Now we have 20 big things that are, that are just as big. Right. And so that's what we, we're talking about when we say, what, how's the world going to change? We don't know, but a lot of change is coming. Yeah, hopefully in 50 years, not like now we'll say like back in the 1800s, they use leeches. <laughs> you know, 50 years now they'll say, no, back in 2023, they use X to cure this, right? Right. Like we're savages, you know, right. so hope right. there's a lot of advances. Yeah, like, and I think food tech, I mean, gosh, talk about incredible. I mean, we talked about Wonderground, but what about all the all the different alternatives to proteins that are coming, right? There is so much coming down the pike there. So we have the opportunity to truly create an amazing world. And I just hope we do that. I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic yeah, and I want to be part of it, but, but like, I'm a big believer in my grandkids be like going to the, the, the moon for vacations, oh, for you sure. know, like pretty exciting. And I also want to live long enough to see some of this play out. So I'm motivated. Yeah. It's a lot of good stuff going on. It's going to happen fast too. Like, like people don't realize, like, I think the first flight in was 1913 with the moon, like, like 50 years later. Right. Like, and like, no one knows what we don't know. Right. Like, some, That's right. That's like right. solving the fusion problem might bring another problem that gets solved, right? You never know. Like there's um these two uh black teenagers in high school in New Orleans. 
they they solved this math problem that's been unsolved for two thousand years, right? Really? Yeah, okay. I, I, I seen the link, right? It's yeah. something they did. They did thought of a different way. Well, people are thinking about the world differently, yep. right? It it is forcing us to think about the world differently, and so that's exciting. And also, what's exciting is there isn't just Russia and the U.S. doing space, for example. Yeah. Right. There's private companies doing it. There's other countries doing it. So all of these things, once it gets the information gets out there, other people can riff on it and react to it and do their do their version of it. So it's an incredibly exciting time. Yeah, different exciting things. You know, and I, I try a lot of water, walk, watch a lot of nature stuff, space stuff. Right. You see the oceans like it's like every week there's a like new animal that gets discovered. Right. Like you've never seen before. And they're bringing back the woolly mammoth. I don't know about that one. <laughs> That's definitely a slippery slope. Yeah, exactly. Oh, we can bring back the T-Rex. We can bring back this. Let's bring Wait, back the Bionic Plague. <laughs> yeah, bring back the Bionic Plague. Let's hold on, you know. Of course, like with AI, the thing is, like, it says, well, at least we know who started Skynet, you know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, like I said, I don't think a lot of people realize what's coming, right? And a lot of people like the company, right? You know, they're... Some people night. don't want to know what's coming. No, they don't. They, yeah, right. They'd rather have their head in the ground. You know, okay. work their job. Come on, watch the TV. You know, right. go to dinner. Like, yeah, that's out there. Whatever. Well, you know, and, and that's somewhat comforting. I mean, in a world of a lot of change and a lot of things being thrown at us, there's there's something comforting about you know having routine and having your posse and having consistency. But but on the other hand, you know, let's let's embrace some of this change and and do good with it. Yes, change is easily good for the most part. Exactly. So in your time in Seattle, from your point of view, what are some things that have become better and, and or worse for the tech Seattle startup VC? Scene? Oh, I think the lots a lot's changed for the better. You know, there's there's more VCs, there are more startups, there are more opportunities uh to get coaching and mentoring and to get support. There's incubators, there's accelerators, there's more uh computer science. Uh, graduates. I, I actually think Seattle's really having a great moment. And I, I think it feels like we're on such an interesting upward slope. You know, I, I read the statistic that Seattle had more white collar immigration during COVID than any other city, which was not intuitive to me, but it's still a great place to live. Uh, you, you know, we got to fix downtown for sure. Uh, and we got to get people feeling comfortable in this city and engaged in the city. Uh, but Seattle has so many things to offer from a quality of life standpoint and also for a business environment standpoint that I'm, I'm really excited. I call it home and plan to call it home. And I want to be involved in all, all of the innovation that's happening. So with the Seattle downtown, like I always say, like people with way more money and way more than me have not been able to solve it right. What what can solve this problem? Like another thing, like people say, Seattle used to be nice. I've been to Seattle since 2009, and it's never been nice, right? Like, so yeah. I tell my, my aunt and uncle came to visit me in like 2010. We parked in front of Pike Place Market, parking lot there. People like doing drug deals, right? Yeah, no. I mean, look, it's it's not. If I knew that, you know, I should be mayor. But it's a difficult. It's it's you got it. You got to attack it on a variety of fronts. And part of it is, you know, I live in South Lake Union. And when Amazon said nobody needs to come to work, guess what happened? Stores, oh, stores, right. And that is a, that has a huge impact when it's, but you go to New York where there's 
coffee shops and restaurants and things are open and there's people walking around and there's, you've got to bring positive energy and you have to actually say, it's not okay for there to be homeless in these areas. We've got to deal with the homeless. Don't get me wrong, but if we have laws, we we've got to actually enforce them. I mean, like you, like you, you Bellevue to Seattle, it's no comparison. Right? Right, there's no comparison. I, I, I'm sure I've seen a homeless person there. I just don't remember it. Right. <laughs> right. And I think, look, you gotta, you gotta make a downtown a reason. There's gotta be reasons for people to want to be there and it's culture, it's restaurants, it's energy. We have so many, the new convention center is awesome. The Pike place continues to get better and better as they expand. Are they doing like a the new water, waterfront thing? The waterfront is absolutely amazing. We got to get housing downtown. We got to think about what we're going to do with these empty buildings and we've got to enforce the laws we have. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I'm no, I'm no politician here. But I do care a lot about this, and I live downtown, and I have lived downtown, and I want it to be a great place. So it's not, and they're like the only VCs that live in Redmond or Issaquah, or like you're like here in the heart of it. Yeah, I, I live in a very humble two bedroom house, and I, I love where I live, and uh, I like walking the streets, and I walk. South Union is just a, such a great area. Like, uh, I'm I'm like, thrilled to be there. I don't know if you're if in the daytime. Can I still walk out of the WeWork in South Union all the time? Oh yeah, of course on Yale. So yeah, so you know, I mean, you just walk around. Plus, I go to events and I think a collective a lot. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And just like the it's great the it's, atmosphere, the vibe. Great. Yeah. So I I'm optimistic, and uh, you know, I, I hope I can be a positive influence in my own way. So back to some of the personal, and I don't know if you still do this. But uh, you are a big ticket stuff collector, correct? I am. I, um, I, I, miss, still doing I haven't that? been doing it as no. much as I want. Okay. Um, I, I have I have where I have uh, storage lockers full of ticket stubs. And, and these I, events you actually went to? No, it's just I love the storytelling around and the beauty of the art of ticket stuff. This is the actual ticket that paper actual stuff, paper, okay. and you know they've gone away. Yeah. And so I think it's they, not the same thing to have like a. Bunch of um, computer computerized saving your cloud. No, 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 no. I, I really, it's funny. I, I love my ticket stubs, and I could imagine spending a lot of time. And they've gotten more valuable. I don't, I don't do it for that reason. Um, but uh, it is something I could go deep again into. Uh, I've got fifty thousand ticket stubs or some oh. some crazy number like that. <laughs> and a lot of people have actually said when they uh, in their will, I mentioned, and they're going to give me their sports ticket stub collection when they pass. Well, is there like a like a what's like the most famous event you have ticket stub to that you can remember? Well, I I, I tend to collect a series. So at one point, I had every Super Bowl. Okay. Or every home run that Mark McGuire hit in his 70 okay. season or, right. or every stub to every game that Barry Bonds hit a 73 or when Hank Aaron hit a 600, there tend to be, they mark moments okay. every Kentucky Derby or that, that sort of thing. Are you a big supporter of the Seattle sports team? I love, of course. All of them. I mean, I love, yeah, I love okay. the, I love the, the Sea Wolves, you know the Sea Wolves in yeah, rugby. The, the rugby team, the yeah. rain. I've seen them play. I've seen the Storm play. Mm -hmm. I've I've literally seen every team. Okay, including our, we have an ultimate frisbee team. I've actually gone to that game too. So yeah, I I, I like the teams. Do you think one of them has like a has a? Of course, they all have a like great atmosphere. Like I tell people, like I had a friend come come visit me. He wanted to go to Seahawks game. I said, dude, gotta get some earplugs. Oh yeah, you know? I, it's it's incredible. The football games are incredible. The Kraken right now, I mean, oh, yeah, great, yeah. incredible story. They also like second yeah, year, I think. Yeah, the Sounders are they set the standard mm -hmm. for for the for Major League Soccer. It's pretty. It, we have a great fan base, and and 
I'm bummed think, we don't have an NBA team, but we'll hopefully yeah. we'll get one. And I think all of them uh, have one championship or winning championship, like the that's Sounders right. like they win every other year. That's right. It's the Storm win, you know, pretty regular basis. You know, Seahawks, you know, they won like, like 10 years ago, but it's still competitive. Yeah, Even last so year, oh, yeah. everyone, oh, they're going to be like to win a game. Yeah, they, no, it's they exciting. Got playoffs. And what happens is, is sports brings community together. Mm-hmm. People, no matter what your politics are, no matter what your religion is, no yeah. matter what... If if the Mariners win and we both love the Mariners, man, we're hugging each other. Yes. I love that. Yes. Um, so next, you talk about some of your current projects. So you were talking about this, um, the um the search fund. And then let's talk about the you also do a real estate fund in Texas. Yeah. So this is uh, I I happen to I I do things that I personally am invested in and personally like. My family's been in real estate forever. I like real estate as an asset. Now, when you say real estate, you mean residential, commercial, but both. Okay. But but it, this happens to be um, what I call a value add uh, garden apartment uh, real estate play. Okay. So we, is nothing sexy about it. There's just you know the simple premise is there's a shortage of housing. Texas is growing. Uh, you know you can add value to and and up rents when you refurbish. It is a very tried and true formula that has consistently delivered uh, above market rates of return. And so uh, the guys involved who do the real work uh, are fantastic. Uh, we've been we've been doing it for years now. We've done 10 projects over the last three years. Um, so, yeah, it's fun. It gets me to Texas every once in a while. I get good barbecue that way. <laughs> And uh, yeah, so I'm involved in that. So I'm sure you've been on, on, on a several board of advisors, haven't you? Oh yeah, I've been on lots of boards. So what 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 convinces? What does that come have to do to convince you to be on the board of advisors? Well, it's it's I am first of all I'm passionate about the arts, and so I've been on several nonprofit boards as well. So to answer that question, I have to make sure I can add value, that I have the time and can live up to my commitment, and that. Um, I uh, love the company. I want to be involved with the company. I want to really spend extra time. So add value, can do the job, and and am engaged with the with the founders or the entrepreneurs or the management to 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 spend more time with them. So talk about this. I, so I think a lot of people in are young in the twenties or thirties, like man, when I get to 40, 50, 60, I'm gonna hang it up. I'll I'll be yeah. I'll be done and dead. You know whatever case yeah. be. But like at our age, like we're still pretty focused, right? So a lot oh, of yeah. energy, right? Like. I'm as focused as I've ever been. Uh, I say I'm focused like I'm more focused now than ever, right? Like, right. how do you think that comes about? Is there some of the natural genetics or just like your drive? Like, I, it's a really good question. If you have kids, you wonder like, how do you impart that, or are they going to be like that? I don't know. I'm. I I think it comes starts with family. I my father was entrepreneurial. My mother was entrepreneurial. Uh, we were given lots of opportunities. We were told to take chances. Uh, I just I I am. I wait. I think we talked about this. I wake up every day thinking, "What can I learn today?" There's so much. There's so much cool things to learn and to do. I, it almost feels genetic, right? But I, I don't know exactly why I am this way. But I am this way. <laughs> so with everything you have going on, you know, all your businesses, investments, on and on. Like, how do you take care of yourself, right? How do you make sure you don't burn out? Like, it's a good question. You like make sure you like sleep a number of hours a day. I know you do meditation. Like, got my aura ring on. <laughs> I, How do you I, take care of yourself? Yeah, I think I think it's it's such an important thing. And it, it's true that my energy today isn't what it was when I was 30. Um, and taking care of 
oneself. I, I actually listen to a lot of podcasts, whether Peter Atia or Huberman, or um, I have a, a group of friends who actually actively talk about this. Uh, you know, am I doing everything I can? I, I know that sleep's really important. I try and make sure that I, I nail that. Uh, I know exercise is really important. I am an obsessive walker and people know me. I mean, last year I averaged 25,000 steps a day. That's a half a marathon a day. Uh, so, uh, you know, sleep, reasonably good eating, don't drink too much wine, meditation, exercise. That's how I do it. And friends, I, you know, you cannot mental health. You got to, friends are so important. Is there anything you do strictly for fun? This is fun. Everything <laughs> yes, it is. is for fun. I mean, honestly, That's a good like, to go outlook, yeah. I, I really don't differentiate. Like, mm. I, I wake up every day. I think let's Warren Buffett said he skips to work. I, I, I don't have far to go, so I don't really skip, but I, I, it's all fun. So for you, you don't, you know, people like you don't believe work-life balance. You just believe in life. Yeah. That's a great way to say it. I really do. I believe in life and, and, you know, my priority in terms of that is my daughter first. Um, but, but taking care of, I have to be around if I'm going to be a good dad, you have to be around. So I got to take care of myself and then I have to be engaged. I have to be excited. And I feel like I'm doing things that are as as great as it's ever been. And, and I'm really, I, I, I'm excited. So when you do your day-to-day business, like you, you run your life off a calendar, like what comes up or like, how do you run that? Yeah. I wish I was better at that. I, I'm, I'm a Microsoft guy. I use Outlook. I have an assistant. Um, I try and every Sunday, look at the week ahead, every morning, wake up, you know, some people go to bed thinking about their calendar. I actually don't like to do that because then it starts to get in my head. So I wake up in the morning, <laughs> I have my morning routine that we talked about. I try and check my day. So I'm, so I'm aware of what's coming up. Um, and off we go. Yes. I do a lot of walking meetings, by the way. Like a walking meetings. Yeah. I do a lot of walking. So I guess you don't, you don't, do you have a car? I do have a car, but, but it's, use a, it. it's a, it's, I painted it in one of my first investments in, in Evite mm. and it's in, it's a, it's a 2000. So it's 23 years old, has 40,000 miles. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, so that's the one with the polka dots. Yeah. So I'm guessing your daughter's not going to want to take that car from you. She has made that very clear. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, she's not sure why I still have it. <laughs> yeah. We don't have cassette tapes. I know, honey. <laughs> but honestly, I, it, I do it because I'm trying to also demonstrate mm-hmm. why do we need a new car? Yeah. Right. Make that, just to have a new car. That's not good for the environment. I, it's just, I just don't need it. So I go to the airport a lot. I take the light rail. Yeah. I mean, and I walk a lot. That's one plus about Seattle. Like, we do have a good public transportation system, you know. I use Com- it a lot. Compared to other cities, you know. For sure. Um, I was just in Portugal and the, the metro was great. Oh, yeah. Like, it was really great. Do you have an idea? Like the, the metro is like Europe. Yeah. And Europe Seoul, Korea, great. Tokyo. New York is great. I, like yeah. I was in New York. And so I, I try and I'm excited that it's going to go to Bellevue and it's expanding and out to Ballard at some point. Yeah. Hopefully they meet the timeline. Doesn't, I know. You know. I know. You know, like we're like 2045, you know, right. we're almost there. <laughs> so we really got to stay alive. <laughs> yeah. So John, is there anything else you want to talk about or any questions I haven't asked about that you want to talk about? No, I, I'm just, uh, it's fun to have a, a conversation. Um, Thanks. You know, I, when I was uh, first moved to Seattle in 88 and 89, once a month, I reached out to entrepreneurs and I said, uh, would you just meet, I'd like to buy you a cup of coffee. 
I didn't say latte because I didn't know. <laughs> but but um, I would just encourage people, uh, you know, uh, go out and meet people and and hear their story and get inspired because it's we we really this town has amazing people. It does. And and I will say this. Um, I listen, I, as I said, I walk a lot. I, I listen to podcasts. I listen to books on tape. There are so many ways to get to, to life hack, right? That you couldn't do before. So I, I you know, what, what do I do for fun? I listen, I listen to, I'm reading a book right now called range. Great book. Right. And it basically says <clears throat> you can't to, to be great at something. Don't be great at one thing have a range of things you're good at. That's what's going to serve you in life. And I'm a big believer, whether it's athletes or whether it's in business. And, and that's kind of, I guess I like it because it, it it fits who I am and how I think about the world. And so I would just encourage people to, to go get a, if you heard something on here today, like search funds, go, go look at the Stanford study on search funds or wine. You've never had Argentine wine. Go, go, go try some. I mean, just go try it. And, uh, th- that's, that's the richness of life. And so no, there's nothing else. It's just, uh, I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for having me. I think me. one important thing that you like, like about you, like you're doing like all these different things, right? Like you're just not only a VC, right? You're not only a wine person, like right. you all these very interesting stuff that keep your life vibrant and interesting, right? It's, it's been, it's been a great journey. I feel very lucky. So John, I thought it was a couple more questions. So first one is like, who, who mentors you right now? Like, who are your mentors? And how do they help you out? Oh gosh, I'm <clears throat> extremely lucky. I'm uh, been in a book club for over 30 years, uh, and those guys uh, are inspiration for me and and full of wisdom. Uh, I'm in a I'm in a breakfast group for again over 30 years. They're they're friends, uh, but uh, you know, again, I it's not one person. I'm lucky. I have people I can go to on various subjects if I need. If it's the wine conversation, I, I know there's some people that I know well that'll have my back. They'll give me the truth. If it's venture, if it's search funds, if it's parenting, right? It's not one person. I, I, I'm very, very lucky that um, I have a group of people that uh, are really supportive and are, are more than just friends. They're they're really connected in a way that I that that make my life great. From from that perspective, just great that I that I'm able to to connect that way with with my friends. And then of course the second part, who are you mentoring right now? Yeah, so um, that's fun. I I one of the reasons I want to get into search funds is I really am excited about. I, in fact, I'm going to take a course in coaching. I've mentored and coached, but I, I want to up my game in that area. But hopefully, the the people that uh, I'm investing in are finding value. I'm. I've got a call right after this with someone who wants to talk about the next phase of their company, uh, people who are looking to buy our company. So I, I, I went out yesterday, I had lunch with a woman. I, I, I try and be more thoughtful about helping people like women and underrepresented people uh, around getting ahead and, and getting support. Um, so it's a, it's a variety and it's I view that as, as something integral to to my purpose and mission so john i know no one has a, like a, a a glass ball where they can see the future right but based on your experience and your knowledge what do you think the future of startups and bc invest your fundraising is going to be for the rest of the year you know silicon valley bank oh, failing gosh. all this stuff going <laughs> well, on look, innovation's not stopping um it actually feels like people are getting back on the horse 
banks are filling the void. I, I feel pretty optimistic. I, you know, we've got some recession-ish like issues. We've got uh, higher interest rates, and people probably want. But there's a ton of interesting things happening, and they will get funded. You know, founders know they get a lot of advice, right? And I don't think any of it's like intentionally bad, but it's like come from different lenses, different points of view, right? But we I mean, some of it is kind of bad, right? As a founder, how do you recommend like you know like like twist all this advice and select what's good for them, or is that even possible to do? So how how can a, a founder get the the best the advice? best advice, right? You know, they're going to get all this advice from different people, you know. Well, part of it is getting advice is one piece of it, but going out and doing it's another piece of it. I, I don't know about you, but it's one thing to have the theory and it's another thing to have the practice. And every time I do the practice, the theory either makes sense or doesn't make sense, but at least I have now context for it. So the great thing is there are so many resources available. And people who, when someone walks into a meeting with me and had it, you can tell they haven't done the work that says they can speak the language or understand the basics. I think to myself, if you're not curious enough to do that, what, how are you going to succeed as an entrepreneur? There's there's so many opportunities now, uh, as you said, YouTube and podcasts and books and classes. And it's it, it's incredible. And But I do think you asked a good question, which is who's your mentor? Who's your... Like a personal board of advisors. I mean, my advice to people would be make sure you've got a number of people that are people who are going to tell you the truth, that will hold you accountable, that can give you some advice. And it does not need to be a lonely journey. It's hard enough to be an entrepreneur, hard enough to start things. Get, get some people on your team. So I know as a founder, they'll tell you a founder, like, you know, don't give up, keep on going, whatever right. it case be. But for a founder, shouldn't you have a, like, a, I would say like a red flag where you say like, I'm not going to do this. You know, like, I'm not going to mortgage the house or I'm not going to, yeah, yeah, yeah. everybody's got level of, of uh, risk taking is different. And again, if you have people you can who you trust, who have some wisdom and experience, hopefully you've got a sounding board. You need a sounding board. It's hard. It's very hard to do this stuff. The, the, the journey is a is a arduous journey, and it's can be very lonely. And some of my friends have really fallen hard trying to do it. So I I have to say, create community around this. And, and, you know, you as a father of a 14, almost 15 year old, what do I care deeply about? Who are her friends? Who's inspiring her? Who's setting examples for her? It doesn't change when you're an adult. You still need that. So, John, uh, you already missed this before, but can you give us your social media ways for people to reach out to you? Uh, sure. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter, Stainman. I'm on um, uh, Facebook's not a great way, but just my, if you go to Stainberg.com, that's the single best way. S-T-A-E-N-B-E-R-G.com. And, uh, you can reach out to me that way. And John, can you give us any, you always gave us a lot of great advice, great value. Can you give us any like, other, like last minute advice on wisdom or anything you want to talk about? Yeah, stay foolish, stay hungry. Uh, Steve Jobs said it exactly right. Um, I just, uh, we we are such a lucky generation, and not everybody is. I don't I don't want to pretend. Um, there's a lot of pain and 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 hurt in the world, and people uh, have nots. And we need to. We all have a responsibility, in my mind, to to be thoughtful about that and be giving and be um, try try to to help there. But gosh, the, I see so many people who have so much and 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 don't even realize it, and and. 
um, you know, skip to work and 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 drink some good wine. Uh, that's my advice. You make a point, like like even like what 150 years, maybe 100 years ago, where there's no electricity, still doing bathrooms in outhouses, right? I mean, like, I mean, I'll say, of course, there's bad stuff for it, but of general things, most people have are pretty good, right? Of course, like if you sit down right now, life's not good for you, you know, sure. different parts of the world, Ukraine's not like, but if you're in America, I mean, life's pretty good for you, right? And for, for a lot of people, not for everybody, but for a lot of people. And it's, I think we tend to forget it. Some, yeah. it, it for those, a lot, a lot of people, it, and there's a, lot, there's a lot of mental illness, there's, there's a lot of problems, but I also think sometimes you just got to, you know, hit yourself yeah. in the face and go, pretty good. I know. Pretty good day. Like, 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 you know, you, you turn the TV on, man, is that what's that come on for? Like, give it a second, you know, right. Give it a, give it a second. <laughs> right. Exactly. No, it's right. Yeah. And so I, uh, sometimes I'll just, I'll probably walk out of this meeting today. And before I get in my car, I'm just going to look up at the sky and notice it and hear the birds. Yeah. Some, some, even in, the breeze. Even downtown Seattle, right? Even downtown the, the sky's Seattle. there, the That's birds right. everywhere. Right. But you, you don't see them. You don't right. notice them, you know? Right. That's right. So I'm going to go do that. Cool. So, John, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Fantastic. And to our listeners, thanks for your time as well. Remember to be great every day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Jason Kavnis Experience. Be sure to connect with us across social media at Kavnis HR. Thank you. And remember to be great every day. Don't you know, pump it up. You've got to pump it up. Don't you know, pump it up. You've got to pump it up. Don't you know, pump it up. You've got to pump it up.